Revelation chapter 8. And I want to encourage you to do whatever you have to do to stay with me tonight. All the way to the end, and I promise to get you out of here before 11. (laughs) Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This is far more than an allegorical picture of the dynamic way that God answers prayer. And I've heard it preached that way. And yes, God answers prayer. And yes, He answers dynamically. And yes, you could take this and say, wow, what a picture. We pray and God responds. We pray and there's activity. There's action. But what John is recording here is nothing less than an actual moment. Something that will happen in days soon to come. In which the spiritual impacts the physical, the the heavenly invades the earthly. And so the things that we read happening on the earth are very real actualities that, that are caused as this event takes place in heaven. As the prayers are mixed with the incense and then that fire is thrown down. It's a holy throwdown. And it's fire from the heavenly altar that is actuating that booming thunder and crackling lightning and global seismic disturbance, God's tangible, actual, literal, physical response to the prayers of the saints. And with that, and with the opening of the seventh seal by Jesus the Lamb, the next series of judgments are begun. Verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Two types of trumpets were used in Israel. You Bible students know this, but let's go over it again, make sure we're clear. There was the original trumpet, the shofar, the ram's horn. The first mention of a trumpet in the Bible, Exodus chapter 19, verse 13, which says, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And of course, they were at Mount Sinai. And the Lord was instructing Moses that when that blast occurs, the people are to come to the mountain. God's saying, I want my people to come toward me. Don't touch the mountain, but come to the mountain. When you hear that shofar blast. The other kind of trumpet, understood and known well in Israel, is the Hatzot Sirah. Uh, the Hatsosarah Kesef. Kesef means silver. Hatsosarah is trumpet. The silver trumpet. So there was the shofar, which was the ram's horn, more of the natural trumpet. And then there was the handcrafted silver trumpet. Numbers chapter 10 first mentions that, that the Lord spoke further to Moses saying, Make yourself two trumpets of silver, of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camps set out. Later that trumpet actually had a special place at the pinnacle of the temple. 
There was a place that said, for the blowing of the trumpets. And in that corner of the temple, the trumpet would be kept there and would be blown from that location. Now Hosea the prophet uses both together. He wrote, blow the horn, the shofar, in Gabeah. And the trumpet, the chatzot in Ramah, sound an alarm at Bethaven. So both trumpets being blown. Why? Well, the trumpets in Israel had three primary uses. Assembly, blow the trumpet for the people to assemble. Appointed feasts, new moon festivals and the feasts that would happen throughout the year. They blow the trumpet for the feasts. And thirdly, as an alarm sound or an alert. Are you with me so far? Okay. Listen. It's important to understand that because the trumpet is at the center of one of the main disagreements in eschatology. The end times view. What's going to happen? What's the order of things that are going to happen? And so I ask you tonight, are you pre-mid, post-partial, or pre-wrath? Do you even know? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 tells us, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So, five things to note, and I want to go through these, these as fast as I can because I want to get them out of the way. Okay, number one, the pre-tribulation rapture. A pre-tribulation rapture. That's view number one, and I put it first because it's what I subscribe to. Oh, you're a pre-tribber, Rick. No, actually, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I subscribe to pre-tribulation rapture. Let's not get labeled here. But it is the only view of all the views given that accepts the plain sense of Scripture. Now, you can have another view. Just understand you've got to allegorize some things to get there. You can have another perspective, but it's not going to be the most literal. You're going to have to jump through some hoops to make it work. The pre-tribulation rapture simply teaches that before Jesus begins, before the tribulation begins, Revelation chapter 6, believers are caught up. And we've seen the very plain sense in Revelation even. Chapter 1, Jesus glorified. Chapters 2 and 3, the church age. Suddenly chapters 4, we're in heaven. And chapter 5. And then, and then, chapter 6, the tribulation begins. A pre-tribulation rapture of the church. For God has not destined us for what? Wrath. Wrath. We're not meant to go through wrath to experience that tribulation. Yes, in this world we will have tribulations with a little T. And sometimes that little T feels awfully big, but we are not destined for the tribulation that is to be poured out on this earth. I think that will be even more clear this evening before we're done. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. So, the pre-tribulation rapture, and that's where we've been, and that's kind of what we've been talking through, just taking a literal perspective of the Scriptures going through Revelation, pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Second, is called the partial rapture. Now, that doesn't mean that half of your body goes while the other half flops down on the ground. The partial rapture approach, and I confess to you, I have had a tendency to lean this way a little bit, and you'll see why. I don't buy this... But I have, I understand it. The partial rapture teaches that only the watchful will be caught up. 
Only those who are on the alert, only those who are awake, who are aware, who are looking for and longing for the coming of Jesus Christ will be caught up. Now, Jesus said in Luke 21, 36, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you have the strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The, the, the word calls out alertness and loving the second coming of Jesus and looking forward to His coming and being ready when He comes. Hebrews 9.28 Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Christ will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. So some suppose that, well, perhaps there's a partial rapture that only those in the church who are eagerly awaiting Him will be caught up. Only those who are intentionally watchful. And and the reason I said I have leaned that way, or, or at least I understand that perspective, is didn't we just see, didn't Jesus just say that some would be thrown into great tribulation, Thyatira? Didn't He say that some would be found asleep, Sardis? Others would refuse to open the door to his knocking, Laodicea. These are churches he's talking to. And there are people in those churches or of those church traditions who are going to miss it. So is that partial rapture? Understand, here's where I have to break with that and not accept that opinion or that position. While we are told to keep watch, and we are, while we are called to be a people who are alert and wide awake and sober and looking for and longing for the coming of Jesus Christ, the issue of our being caught up and the issue of our salvation is neither identification with a church or a tradition, nor is it watchfulness. The issue is faith. Faith in God's grace. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. It's faith in God's grace that saves us. So wonderfully, there are going to be a lot of people raptured who have no clue what's going on. Who are going to be shocked and surprised and joyful. Those who are saying, what just happened? And we'll be saying, you were raptured, dude, get used to it. And so it's not based on, are we standing there looking up, ready to jump? It's based on, do we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation? Are we under the blood of Jesus? And I come back to that, I pause here just for a moment, because we need to, I need to be careful. Anytime my approach to Christian living is the only right one. If I start to think that way about any given issue... Man, self-righteousness is right there, and self-righteousness is a dangerous thing. We've got to be careful that we don't get to the point that anyone not living like me is not approved by God. That's not true. Boy, I'll tell you what. You know who wasn't living like me? Me, ten years ago. When I look back at myself twenty years ago, I would hope that because I believed in Jesus and trusted Him, that I would be as saved then as I am right now. 
And so when we look out across the fellowship of believers, not just here at the bridge, but throughout the area, across the nation and in the world, let's be careful not to be out judging other people of other traditions or other perspectives. Jesus is the focus. His grace is the thing. And if someone believes and accepts that, they may not be where you are. But praise God, His blood is sufficient to cover all of our sin. So, and by the way, I would, I would rather be in a more sanctified place. I'd rather be among those who are longing for His appearing, who are loving Him, who are excited about it, than to be someone who's caught up in the mundane of life. But trust Jesus. And that's the deal. So, partial rapture theory, I, I can't go there. I can't go there. Pre-tribulation, absolutely. Before the wrath of God is poured out, before the tribulation begins, I'm in. But partial, cutting out some because they're not quite as intentional as you are as I am, I, I don't buy it. Number three, I also don't buy the post-tribulation rapture, which teaches that the rapture and the return of Christ are one event. I already handed out that, that sheet of paper a, a few weeks back comparing the glorious appearing of Jesus to the rapture of the church. And you look at that and you can see the very clear distinctions. And if you didn't get one of those, call the front office and the able will get it into your hands pronto. But the difference between the two, and yet post-tribulation rapture, and I bought into this for years of my life. It's just, he just comes. That's just, that's it. Jesus returns and it's over. And then what? Well, I don't know, but you know, it's over. And I bought that, I thought that, because I was never taught anything different. It teaches again that that we're all going to go through uh, any tribulation, any wrath that there is, we're going to go through that, and then Jesus is going to ultimately come. And then from there, the post-tribulationist has two options, two opinions, two approaches. Either A, Jesus comes and we go to heaven and it's just over. Or B, and I really, this is fun actually, we're caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds and He catches us and takes us right back down. It's the bungee rapture. You're up, you're down. You know, you're with Him, you're back. (laughs) You're caught up, you're back home. Whoa! You know, and we're all just kind of dizzy from the the up-down ride. Here's the problem with the post-tribulation approach. Number one, it denies dispensationalism. Oh, so you're a dispensationalist too? Yeah, I just like the name. I I like the word. Some of you are saying, what is dispensationalism? A dispensation is a season. It's a period of time. And a dispensationalist says, if you read through Scripture, God has dealt with different people in different seasons in different ways. That's the most simple way to put it. That there was a time where God dealt with mankind. like, Like during the time of Moses, the Mosaic Law, the time of the patriarchs, before that. The time of the patriarchs, God dealt with Adam or with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob differently than he would later deal with Israel, than he would later deal with the church. We're in the church age. Guess what? That's a dispensation. It's just a period of time. But as you go through this, one of those dispensations is the kingdom. Post-tribulation rapture doesn't get that. Post-tribulation rapture, well, many think we're in the kingdom right now. <laughs> It also denies God's plan for Israel. The fact that Israel even has a place in all this. It denies Revelation 6-19 through as literal, including the significance and importance of the tribulation. And yes, I said importance. You'll see why in a few minutes. 
It denies the earliest church teaching of the eminence of Jesus' return. Now, the post-tribulationists will tell you that the pre-tribulation rapture is a relatively new idea in church doctrine. They'll say around 1830, a guy came along by the name of John Nelson Darby. He did. And there's a group of people called the Plymouth Brethren. There was. And these folks got together and they came up with this rapture theology, this this weird pre-tribulation rapture stuff. And they began to teach that, and, and they're nutty. And that it wasn't taught in the church for hundreds of years, and therefore, you know, it's not legitimate. They're right that it wasn't taught in the church for hundreds of years. But you've got to go back. I go way back before John Nelson Darby. I go back across the centuries, and we land about the 2nd to 3rd century, and we meet people like, as you've heard me mention, Tertullian or Clement of Alexandria, or Irenaeus, they were all pre-tribbers. We have documentation, we have actually an extant manuscript of Irenaeus, a sermon that he gave where he was talking about the pre-tribulation rapture of the church in around 150 to 160. But you know what? Don't stop there. Why don't you go back a little bit further to people like, oh, John... Peter, Paul. It was Peter who wrote in 2 Peter 2 verse 7, If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then, 2 Peter 2 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from testing and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows how to do this. To do what? To rescue from testing. Or what about Paul? A little more obviously, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, We wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Pre-tribulation. And then of course there's the teaching of Jesus Himself, who said in Matthew 24 verse 40, There will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Let me remind you what the word taken means there is received unto. It's paralambano. One will be received unto, and the other will be be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be received unto, the other one will be left. And Jesus says, therefore, be on the alert, because you don't know which day your Lord is coming. And then Jesus, using the same word, received unto, said in John 14.3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and paralambano you to myself, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be, Also, a clear reading of the Scriptures begins to point these things out and you see what the Bible teaches. And by the way, why would Jesus propose only to beat up the bride? If we are the bride of Christ as we are, does He intend for His bride to go through wrath and tribulation? The post-tribber would think so. Now, some people try to meet post-tribulation theology halfway, and they are two more that we'll mention tonight, and we'll move on beyond all this stuff. There's the pre-wrath rapture. (laughs) And this one's interesting to me, because basically that says, we'll be caught up between the sixth and the seventh seal. In, In between those two. There's only one problem with that. There is nothing in the Bible that indicates that time of catching up. Go back when you have a chance and read Revelation chapter 6 and look at the 6th seal and look at what happens between the 6th and the 7th and tell me where in there are we caught up? 
Nothing talks about that or indicates that. But what they're trying to do, and what the theology is trying to do, is meet the post-tribulation as halfway. Okay, I can't say we're going to go through the whole tribulation, but I'll give you some. I don't want to go through the tribulation. Thank you very much. I want to do what the Bible says we're going to do, and that's go home and be with Jesus before it all comes down. That doesn't matter what I want. It matters what it says. Now, the mid-tribulation position, the mid-tribulation rapture, says that the saints are caught up halfway through. That we go through the first three and a half years, and then we're caught up, and then the last three and a half years happen. And here's where the trumpets become important. But listen. Some think we're going to be caught up at mid-trib along with the two witnesses. Because they are caught up. And, and you, we'll read about that when we get there. Revelation chapter 11, verse 10. We see them uh, We see them killed. We see them lying in the streets of Jerusalem. Their dead bodies while people are celebrating and cheering and giving each other presents as if it was someone's birthday. And then they're raised from the dead and caught up. And so some come along and go, Oh, well, the two witnesses, they represent us. The two witnesses are Jews. <laughs> or at least very representative of Jewish heroes. Again, we'll talk about that when we get there. But others go further to claim that the entire tribulation, as in the Great Tribulation, is really only three and a half years long. That's the length of the tribulation. So we're not mid-trib, we're still pre-trib, but there's only three and a half years, what you call the last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation. And so it ignores Daniel's 70th seven which is a seven-year period of time that fulfills God's plan for Israel. The problem, again, if you start going down different roads of allegory and metaphor and try to insert a rapture theology in these different places, is it starts to fall apart in other places. It just doesn't hold up. Now, I'm telling you, and you don't have to believe me, but the third time teaching through Revelation... And having gone through now the entire Bible over 15 years, what I see plain and clear and simple is a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. It's the most biblical perspective that I have seen. Now, you Bible students remember this, that 69 of the 77s of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, have been fulfilled precisely. God's clock stopped, and there's a single 7 that remains that is 7 years long, And the Bible calls that, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's distress. Because God is working with the Jewish people. He is dealing with Israel as He promised He would. The mid-tribulation position also ignores the fact that the church, so present in Revelation 2 and 3, is completely absent after that. Not named, not mentioned. I think, obviously, present in heaven. We went over that in Revelation 4 and 5. But never once named, once things get underway in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 19, the next time you see the church is coming back with Jesus. Where have we been? Where in there do we see a mid-tribulation rapture? We don't. So so why the mid-trib view? Well, they hang their hat on one primary thing. The last trumpet. And here's where the trumpet becomes important. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Paul said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And the mid-tribulation view says the last trumpet is the seventh trumpet of the seventh angel because it's the last one we see in the Bible. It sounded in Revelation 11.15. So that's the last trumpet. So that must be when the rapture happens because Paul said it takes place at the last trumpet. Is the seventh trumpet of the seven angels, is it the last trumpet? Well, what was the first trumpet? Keep your finger in Revelation 8 and go all the way back to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. If there's a last trumpet, there's got to be a first. When we should see that in Scripture. Exodus chapter 19 While you're turning there again, verse 13, the latter part of the verse, remember the Lord said to Moses, when the ram's horn, when the shofar sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So that's where we are in Exodus 19. But check this out, beginning in verse 16 of Exodus 19. It came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes, does that sound familiar, and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now the Mount Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke with God, and God, or Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Can you even imagine the scene? Now watch this, verse 19. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, again Moses spoke, God answered him with thunder. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Listen, the trumpet sounds. God comes down, Moses goes up. Trumpet sounds, the Lord comes down, Moses goes up. You get what I'm picturing here? There's a trumpet sound, and the Lord descends, and someone ascends. So we see even in that, there's, there's, a, there's a picture, a, a, a type, if you will, of the rapture. This is the first trumpet. The very first trumpet. Now, there are many trumpets that are listed throughout the Bible, but specifically with Israel, I told you there's the silver trumpets and the shofar. So there's those two. But while all these trumpets are are, are listed and mentioned and, and talked about, especially with Israel, listen, there are only two times in the Bible where it's called the trumpet of God. The trump of God. This is the first right here. As the trumpet sounds... And God is speaking. All the rest of the trumpet sounds we see in Scripture are either blown by Israel, by their enemies, or in Revelation 8, 9, and 11, by angels. The first and last trump are trumps of God, not President Trumps. Don't confuse this. The first and last trumpet are the trumpet of God. The first trumpet is the trumpet of God. The last trumpet, the trump of God. And the first and last are His voice. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door opened, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, Come up here. Sound of a trumpet. 
I submit to you, that's the last trumpet. The last trumpet sound of God. And as Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, I read again, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, comfort each other with these words. And there's only one view of all the views of the rapture. And when it could occur, there's only one that's comforting. The pre-tribulation rapture. The others all state at some level you're going to take it on the chin before you go home. You're going to get beat up. You're going to go through wrath. You're going to have to, you know, make payment with everybody else. Hey, the payment was made on the cross of Calvary by the blood of Jesus. And it was not made because I deserve it. But it was made because He offered it. And it is made by His worth, by His value. And honestly, anything that we try to add to grace devalues the blood of Jesus. So one is comforting. We're going to be caught up. Before these things take place. Back to Revelation 8. Now, the seven trumpets of the seven angels. They're not the trumpets of God. It's not God's voice. These seven trumpets are very clearly sounded by the seven angels. As opposed to God's voice in Exodus. And God's voice again in Revelation chapter 4. The first trumpet and the last trumpet. But the seven trumpets of the seven angels are sounded, and they're not for the assembly of the people. And they're not for the appointed feasts. They're not for even salvation. They are trumpets, and get this, of simultaneous warning and judgment. Remember we talked about that Sunday? That's another big difference between the trumpets of God and the trumpets of the angels. The trumpets of God call the people to Him. The trumpets of the angels cast judgment on the earth. The trumpets of the angels are warning and judgment. And as they sound, and as we shall see, terrible judgment falls. And again, the post and mid-trib positions, they assume that we must endure the wrath of God through the seven sealed judgments, and at least through the first six trumpet judgments. That's mid-tribulation. Mid-tribulation, you've got to go through. When we're done tonight, you'll see why you don't want to go through. The trumpet judgments. And why they are not for God's people. These are trumpet sounds of warning still, but of judgment. And the judgment is severe. By the way, one more thing before we get back to Revelation 8. Was there a time that we can point to in history when seven trumpets sounded out judgment on a people? Jericho. Exactly. Joshua chapter 6 tells the story. In Joshua chapter 6, the Lord comes to Joshua and says, i got a deal for you. I want you to go take Jericho, but my battle plan is different than what you might expect. What I want you to do is gear up. Get all your men of war in front and, and behind. Have some priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And I want you to get seven priests to carry seven shofars. And what I want you to do, get this, be ready for this. March around the city with the priests blowing the trumpets one time on the first day. And then go home. Okay. I want you to do that the second day. Same thing. March around the city one time. Blow the trumpets. Go home. Third day, same thing. Fourth day. Fifth, sixth day. Same thing. One time around the city. Blow the trumpets. Go home. 
Now on the seventh day, and you know Joshua at this point is going, oh good, this is the time where we get to start slinging the arrows and chucking the spears. And yeah, we can. No, no. Now on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times. And you're going to blow the trumpets every time around the city. And then on the seventh time around, when the trumpets are blown, call the people to give a great shout. And when they do, the walls will fall down and you can go take the city. The weirdest battle plan, I think, in the history of the world. But they did exactly as they were told, and in so doing, Jericho fell. And Jericho, mind you, were a bunch of Gentiles being judged. And when those trumpets blew, those seven trumpets of the seven priests, not only was it judgment for Jericho, it was warning for all the nations. Judgment and warning. That's the picture we have of seven trumpets coming into now the seven trumpet judgments. By the way, it wasn't Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. It was Jesus. What's interesting, and I'll just read this to you quickly in Joshua chapter 5, right at the very end of the chapter. Joshua's out wandering by Jericho, looking at it, no doubt trying to think, how can we take this fortified city? And he lifted up his eyes, chapter 5 of Joshua, verse 13, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said in classic Jesus style, no. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What is my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain, this, watch this, the captain of the Lord's hosts said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Who said that before? Well, God did. He's in the presence of God. God in the form of a man, you might say Emmanuel. God with us. And I think there on the outskirts of Jericho, Joshua met Jesus. And Jesus led and fought the battle of Jericho. Jesus now tells the angels to sound. Now let's listen in and watch what happens as the first angel blasts his trumpet. Verse 7. Revelation 8, 7. The first sounded... And there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown down to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. That's the first trumpet. That's just one. Hail, fire, and blood. When God created the earth in Genesis chapter 1 verses 11 and 12, on the third day we find out that the first thing he made once the earth was established there was plant life. Now the first thing to be destroyed is plant life. So it's almost like things are being reversed. You also know that the first global judgment was that of the flood. And God promised he would never again destroy the earth with flood water. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, By His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. How many of you all have, have watched the YouTube videos of the campfire? Have, has, have you seen these? Some that are out there that, that were, you know, someone's got a, um, 
a little GoPro on their dashboard, and you can watch from the front seat of a car driving through the road trying to get out before the fire engulfs the car. I mean, it's, it's terrifying. And in the campfire, 17 days in November that burned there in Northern California, it devastated, you know this, it devastated paradise, which is ironic, sad. Paradise was home to 27,000 people. The city is decimated. It it just doesn't exist. There's nothing left. Completely razed to the ground. California's deadliest, costliest, most destructive fire in the state's entire history. 86 people were killed in that fire. Didn't get out. Three are, are still missing. The cost at this point, $30 billion in damage. And the acreage that was burned in that fire alone, not including the other fires further down in California, 153,336 acres, completely waylaid by this wall of fire. Now, keep that in your heads. It's a big number, but 153,336 acres. On the planet right now, there are 15.6 billion inhabitable acres. I don't know who figures this stuff out, but somebody did. And on the surface of the earth today, 15.6 billion acres that can be farmed and inhabited. A third, a third lost, and we're told a third will be gone. A third will be destroyed in this first trumpet blast. That equals 5.2 billion acres. That is 33,912 times the size of the campfire. This is massive destruction. Overwhelming. Nobody on the face of the earth will not be touched in one way or another by this first trumpet blast. And the cause of this massive destruction is hail, fire, and blood. Why these three? Well, just letting the scripture answer it for us, Isaiah 28 verse 2 says, Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he has cast it down to the earth with his hand. Hail is that picture of destruction. And if you've ever seen a major hailstorm, it does serious damage. It can completely destroy, destroy crops. It can kill people. It can wipe out buildings. And it's a very destructive force. So the hail is one thing. And then fire. Deuteronomy 32 verse 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger. And we see this as a picture. God is not happy here. When this trumpet sounds, part of the reason fire is mixed with hail is that the world would know God's a little upset. There is anger in this judgment. Fire is kindled in my anger. It burns to the lowest part of Sheol. It consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Hail and fire and blood. Blood. What about blood? Blood is God's most graphic picture of life. Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 19, he says, If I should send a plague against that country and, country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Blood. And the implication here is that this blood is human. 
the blood mixing with the hail and the fire, it, it, as the hail and fire come down, the blood is mixed with it because blood is going to be shed and shed big time. Fiery hail, not only striking vegetation and animal life, but people. And this world deserves it. Blood is required of this world. Why? Because this world has shed so much blood. Did you, did you see in the news, just came out today, Governor Cuomo in New York signed into law a bill allowing abortion right up to the day of birth. This is, it gets worse. Now there are certain qualifications, you know, made for that to, to, to allow it, you know, in case the, the mother's life is at risk or, or, or the baby, but we're talking in the birth canal an abortion can now take place in New York. To celebrate the signing of this wonderful progressive bill, as he put it, he ordered that the Empire State Building, the spire, be lit up pink. If you look at a picture of it, it looks like a big needle. Blood red. I looked at that and I thought, I I had two thoughts that were simultaneous. One is it looks like the very device used to kill a child. And secondly, it's like Babel. It's like pointing at God and saying, we don't care what you think. We don't care about your value of human life. This is our call. This is our progressive movement. It makes me sick. Blood is required of this world. If there is a just God, and there is, there must be blood poured out on this world. And you know the thing is, He's the one who did it first. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So we have that that salvation. We have that offer. Look, I'm going to come. I'm going to pour out my blood because blood is required. But you can trust in me, Jesus says. You can take my blood, my sacrifice in your place. Either way, blood is required. And if a person is not justified by the blood of Christ, their own blood is going to be required. Which is why we see hail and fire mixed with blood. And again, that might be a harsh thing to say. Your blood is required. It would be a harsh thing to say if Jesus hadn't already given every last drop of his blood which he gave first. The second angel, verse 8, sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. There it is again. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. I think of how hard Washington State is working right now to save the orcas. The second trumpet, a great burning mountain. First trumpet, hail, fire, and blood. Second trumpet, a burning mountain that is cast into the sea. And some suggest, and it's an interesting thought, that this could be the mushroom cloud of a nuclear blast. Looks like a big burning mountain, doesn't it? Have you seen pictures of the, of the 1950s nuclear tests out in the Bikini Islands? When they blew up that atoll out there, and, and just this, it's frightening. By the way, our nuclear power then were tinker toys compared to what we have now. The bombs that we have today vastly outweigh that. 
But yeah, it, it looks like a mountain, a, a nuclear blast. That mushroom cloud does have a mountainous, fiery, I mean, that, on the sea, a mountain on the So perhaps some would say, ah, I think it's, it's, it's nuclear. Maybe. Probably not. I'll explain. But right now, three-fourths of the earth is covered with water. It says here that one-third will be destroyed. One-third is going to become blood. Interesting that of that three-fourths that covers the earth right now, there is one region in which a third of all the water on the planet is, is contained, the Atlantic Ocean. That's a third. So think of it this way. The mighty Atlantic becomes blood. The entire thing. That's what we're talking about in terms of size. In addition to that, right now, according to World Fleet Monitor, as of January 2019, there were over 89,000 ships in the oceans of the world. And if this happened today, 29,666 ships would go down. The Titanic went down and shocked the world. One boat. The Americas and the Altair went down from Anacortes in the 80s and stunned the entire Northwest. Two boats. 29,666 ships lost instantly as that sea is blood. Can you even imagine the mighty Atlantic Ocean Awash with the blood of all of its marine life and sailors, done. And on top of that, Henry Morris says, sea creatures constitute the lowest and most basic components of many of the world's food chains. Their destruction must produce a domino effect on many higher forms of life. you got to realize, while trees are going down, and grass is burning up, and the seas are being waylaid, that the rest of life is struggling because now everything's being upended. Food sources that were trusted are gone. No longer there. When the great burning mountain comes down from the second trumpet, the third trumpet, verse 10, third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. Some have tried to allegorize it, say maybe that's Satan, or maybe that's, you know, a demon. It's just, just stay with it. What does it say? A great star fell from heaven. What do you think it is, Rick? A great star. Burning like a torch, it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. So now we're into fresh water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The third trumpet is a star called Wormwood. Wormwood in the Greek is absinthos. And it's a a poison, um, bitter plant that grows in waste places. The absinthos, or in Hebrew, is called la'ana. This has been around a long time. Here, it's interesting because it's written as a masculine name, Wormwood. So you see it capitalized in your Bibles. There's a reason for that. It's written like a name. It's cho-absinthos. It's not just this herb. It's, it's, it's like it, it, there's a presence to it, which is interesting. Wormwood is only used in this verse, verse 11, in the New Testament. So two times in the New Testament, all in this one verse, Wormwood. You never see it in another place. In the Hebrew Scriptures, we see it eight times. And every single time we see it, it is coupled with bitterness. So Wormwood and bitterness go hand in hand. It it is a, a bitter plant. It can cause convulsions if ingested. 
paralysis and ultimately death. And so we have this star that is named bitterness, named wormwood. And there's going to be, at this time, a massive global water crisis when a third of the fresh water is done in all the world. Gone. It's now wormwood. You can't, it's undrinkable. Now I want to get into this more on Sunday. There's some things I want to talk about. We'll go back and we'll look at those verses in the Hebrew Scriptures and understand wormwood a little bit better, and there's a reason for it. But for tonight, in Deuteronomy 29... Moses is talking to the people and he's giving them a covenant. It's not the covenant that was made at Sinai. It's an additional covenant to that one. It's been called the land covenant. In some ways, it's a restatement of the land covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. But in Deuteronomy 29, here's this restatement of the land covenant where God is basically giving ifs, ands. He's saying, if you do this, you'll live in the land. You'll be fruitful. It'll be good. If you don't, you're out. And so it's an additional covenant to that of Sinai. And Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, Moses is giving this covenant, and he says, So that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go serve the gods of those nations. That there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Turning away from God always results in bitterness. Turning from the Lord always invites a wormwood life, a bitter life. Don't believe me? Ask the people of Israel. A people who have known bitterness across centuries of this world. No people group has known bitterness like Israel has known bitterness. No one's tasted wormwood like Israel has tasted wormwood. But here's the thing. In the tribulation, huge numbers of people are going to become bitter to the point of no return. They will taste wormwood. And rather than repent, they will become fiercely hardened and bitter toward God. And while all this is literal judgment on the external material world... What we see here and what seems to be signified in these judgments, God's judgments are always applicable. They're always just. They always have to do with the people being judged. And you go through the the ten plagues of Egypt, every one of them were basically attacks on the Egyptian gods. They all had application. They weren't just random, well, let's do frogs. No, I mean, that was against the frog god. You know, let's darken the sun. Well, that was against Ra, the, the sun god. And down the line. So even with these plagues, there is application to the plagues. And, and this trumpet blast, this judgment that brings a poisonous, bitter root, this is judging the poisonous bitterness of humanity today. A recent example is the explosion of bigotry and bitterness and vile hatred on Twitter this week toward the Covington High School students. And maybe you read about that. Some high school students who were at the March for Life rally in Washington, D.C., Cheryl and I took our youth group when we worked in Virginia, took our youth group to that, to that march. So I've been there and, and done that. I've seen that. High school kids everywhere from a Catholic church, Covington High School, and they're there, and they went on the march, and after the march, they're over at the Lincoln Memorial, and they're waiting to get picked up. And a video surfaced that was like 15 seconds long, that looks like in those brief 15 seconds, 
Actually, it doesn't even look like it, but, but it was assumed that these high school students were, were you know, bad-mouthing and, and, and being racist toward some other people around there, a Native American and a couple of guys who called themselves the uh, uh, black Israelites. And so it just exploded on Twitter and in the news, how vile and how these, these guys are racist, da, 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 da. and then the full video came out. And the truth was, the high school students were the ones under attack. They were just standing there and blamed for looking smug. I mean, you, you, got, a, you got a 16, 17-year-old kid and someone guy's coming after him and he's just kind of <laughs> smiling. What do I do here? I don't know. Where's my ride? But we see this kind of reaction. I've never seen people react like this. And, and I, I think social media helps, you know. Now we can not just think it, we can spew it as fast as possible. And some of the things that were said about these high school kids who were there on the march for life. They're horrible. And we're seeing, you know, Jesus said, because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of the many will grow cold. And we're seeing it all over the place, just in the way people react and the way people treat each other. Can I just say, brothers and sisters, let's not fall prey to that in this fellowship or in the way we treat our families and our friends. Let's not be wormwood people. Let's not be bitter and caustic and rude and offensive and, you know, whether we know people or not, we represent Jesus Christ. Let's represent Jesus. But that's just another example of the root of bitterness. Well, bitterness is going to land, it's going to fall on this planet. And justly so. Verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Fourth trumpet sounds, and we have a darkening universe. It's like God takes the the slider on the wall and drops it a third. For the rest of the tribulation, it's dim. It will get darker. But with this trumpet sound, suddenly everything dims. Did you see it? Did you see the super blood wolf moon on Sunday night? Rachel and I were we walked out the back door here and Jim Hutch was there and we walked out and, and we looked up and I was like, whoa, because I'd heard it was happening. But I, you could see like a big chunk, but you could see the shadow of the earth and you could see the, the moon still outlined. It was, it was wild. I was like, whoa. And I got on the phone. I'm driving home. And, and you know, it was through Bluetooth, so I wasn't holding my phone while I was driving. <laughs> And I said, Cheryl, tell the kids, meet me in the, meet me in the driveway. You've got to see this. It's, it's the, the blood moon. It's amazing. I've talked about blood moons before. I've never actually seen one other than on the internet. So we're out in our driveway freezing, jackets on, and we watched the whole thing. We're out there for, you know, a little over an hour and just watched, you know, the, the light decrease. And, it, and if you saw it, you know, it's amazing because the, the more that the moon, the bright white, yellow whiteness of the moon was covered the, the redder it got until the whole thing was a big red ball I mean it was red in the sky it was amazing and the kids are cutting up and messing around so finally Cheryl kicked them into the house you know, normally we kick them out well this time we kicked them in they, they all went inside Cheryl and I are standing out there in the dark and we're just looking at this and, and Cheryl said and it, it gave me chills she said This is what it's going to look like. And I knew what she meant. 
This is what it's going to look like. But not just on one interesting evening every night. A third knocked out. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So the tribulation goes through. Jesus is now talking about something that happens at the end. So not this moment. Not this trumpet sound, the fourth trumpet. This is now the end of the tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Not a third, but completely. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. Not just a third, but all of them. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And what this trumpet judgment signals here in the darkening of sun, moon, and stars is a foreshadowing of the greater darkness to come. That this is about to take place. Can you imagine a 33% reduction in visibility straight across the board. And on top of that, days are a third shorter. Some of you hate when we get into the fall and we're closer to winter and you just get depressed because there's just no daylight, you know. And you're like chugging four or five vitamin D3s every morning and trying to get through. Nights will be a third longer and things are going to be dim. And because of that, you're going to have photosynthesis problem on the two-thirds of plant life that's still there it's not going to have the kind of sunlight it needs so again there, there are ripple effects of all of these judgments that will affect the entire planet as this is coming down and some have compared these trumpet judgments at least the first four to the phenomena we call a nuclear winter listen to this this is from atomicarchive.com don't ask me where I get this stuff Google. <laughs> in 1983, R.P. Turco, O.B. Toon, T.P. Ackerman, J.B. Pollock, and Carl Sagan, together referred to as TTAPS, which is a lot easier, they published a paper entitled Global Atmospheric Consequences of a Nuclear War. It's the foundation of nuclear winter theory. It states that nuclear explosions would set off firestorms over many cities and forests within range. Literal fire walls producing great poisonous plumes of smoke, soot, and dust lifted up by their own heat to high altitudes where they would drift for weeks before dropping back or being washed out of the atmosphere onto the ground. Several hundred million tons of this smoke and soot would be shepherded by strong east or west-to-east winds until they formed a uniform belt of particles encircling the entire northern hemisphere. These thick black clouds would block out all but a fraction of the sun's light for a period as long as several weeks. Conditions of semi-darkness, killing frost, sub-freezing temperatures, combined with high doses of radiation from nuclear fallout, would interrupt plant photosynthesis, thus destroying much of the Earth's vegetation and animal life. The extreme cold, high high radiation levels, and the widespread destruction of industrial, medical, and transportation infrastructures, along with food supplies and crops, would trigger a massive death toll from starvation, exposure, and disease. Nuclear winter. And when you read these four judgments, hail and fire mixed with blood, a great burning mountain thrown into the sea, A great star falling from heaven, burning like a torch. A third of the sun, third of the moon, and third of the stars struck. You look at that, you can see why someone would say, is this nuclear? 
Is this finally the world goes into global thermal nuclear war? In one country against another? And this is the result. And so what the Bible is giving us is a biblical spiritual perspective of actually a a human destruction and fallout. Listen, I don't think so. I, I don't believe personally that the trumpet judgments describe mankind destroying mankind. I think the Bible is very clear. The seven angels are not angels are not agents of mankind. They are agents of God. And they are signaling judgments of God, spiritual judgments impacting the physical, the heavenly, as I said, invading the earthly. And these first four trumpets specifically paint a frightening picture of warning and judgment. Judgment and warning. But read on, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle. If you're reading a King James, it says an angel. I'll explain it. I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Woe, woe, woe. The last three trumpets are the three woes. Why? They're worse. They're worse than everything we've just read. You think the first four are bad? They have nothing on the last three trumpet judgments. We're not even to the bowl judgments yet. Why does it say eagle in the New American Standard Bible, but it says angel in the King James translation? And it really it depends on the Greek manuscripts that were used for the translation. That's one of the reasons the King James is different. I hope you know that is, is the King James comes from the Textus Receptus, uh, Receptus manuscripts, and the NASB and other translations tend to come from the Nestle Allen manuscripts, they're both good. They're both good manuscripts. You're not going to lose out either way because both are, are based on ancient Greek manuscripts. But King James says angel, angelos. Uh, NASB says eagle, aetos. The words are very similar, very close. And so some say, well, maybe it's a scribal error. Eh, I don't think so. You see, a- I- or aetos, the eagle, um, also means vulture, it's a bird of prey. And it may not be either eagle or angel, it may be both. Remember the cherubim? So you have an angel with the face of an eagle. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 10, As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Perhaps, I'm not saying dogmatically, but perhaps this is a cherubim that is in the mid-heavens, and you look up and John writes an eagle or John writes an angel, and God says, well, let's put either one because they're both right. Matthew twenty-four twenty-seven. Jesus said, just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the aetas, the eagles, will gather. Now, Jesus there is prophesying Armageddon, as we'll see when we get to Revelation 19. But this eagle angel, this angel eagle, is crying, Woe, 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 or literally, oi. Oi, oi. Three big oi vays. Okay. And they're the three woes that are they're concurrent with the three last trumpet blasts. Those are the three woes. If you've heard about the three woes in Revelation, they're the last three trumpet judgments. 
And we're not going to look at all of them tonight, but answer this question. Why are these called the three woes? Why are the last three trumpet judgments so much worse than the first four? And it's because the last three unleash what is unquestionably supernatural. The first four, and even Bible scholars have tried to say, well, these could be the natural results of nuclear war. And I almost guarantee to you, while those are coming down, there are going to be people trying to ascribe it to, oh, it must be nuclear, China's firing off, or India's firing this must be nuclear war, you know. Not wanting to acknowledge what's really going on, there is no way to miss what's happening in the last three, a sudden discharge of horrifying demons. Cut loose going all over the earth. A release of four killing angels going about destroying human life on the planet. And in the third and final woe, it seems to me, and we'll get there, we'll look at this, but the temple of heaven appears to visibly open in the sky as the earth is rocked on its axis. And this all, this is going to happen. I mean, do you understand as we study these things, this is, this is not a, a Spielberg movie. This is not Pastor Rick trying to, you know, dredge up some kind of, oh, fear and horror and dread. This is going to happen. This is real. Part of the reason why I continue to say, take the scripture literally, is that we not miss what is really, truly going to happen on this planet. Think about that when you're driving home tonight. Think about that, should God tarry, and we wake up in the morning, we're going about our day, and we're driving through the the lush landscape of northwest Washington, across the bridge, and you look at the beautiful, clear ocean running out there in the Pacific. Think about all that being blood. Think about a third of every tree on the earth, gone. All the grass, gone. This is going to happen, and it begs the question as we study it, why God? Why does God have to go so far? Why does He have to do this? Because God is perfect. And this is something even as Christians, sometimes we don't fully grasp. He is absolutely, 100% perfect. He is so perfect, we can't even consider. My best day, I am not perfect. Not even close. He is absolute perfection. And to be perfectly just, God can't leave a single stone unturned. Every sin of every human of all history must be accounted for and must be paid for. If, If God be just. And if you answer the prayer of believer and non-believer alike in the world, justice! Justice! All those people who went off on the high school students were crying, justice! These kids, that school ought to be ashamed of them to justice! And they were wrong in their understanding of what had happened. But still, it came from a, a cry of justice. We want justice. <laughs> Humanity wants justice. God has promised it. And because He is perfect and because He is eternal, He must judge perfectly and eternally. He has to. Or He's not truly just. And yet, and yet, listen, Isaiah 30 verse 18, 
The Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. And looking at these, it strikes me that in these trumpet judgments, these first four that we've looked at, all bring out a third catastrophe. One-third cataclysms. You know what that means? Two-thirds are spared. For all the judgment that is taking down a third of all these things on earth, two-thirds are spared. Twice as many things are spared in these judgments as are destroyed. In other words, God is showing twice as much mercy as He's showing judgment. That's why I've said these are not just judgments, they're also warnings. Because along with the judgment, we continue to see twice as much in terms of the grace and mercy of God saying, as the judgments are falling and a third is wiped out here and a third is wiped out there, He's still saying, I'm leaving two-thirds. Please, please, please turn and be saved. Because while God is absolutely just, perfectly just, He is also perfectly merciful. He is also perfect in grace. And so while this upheaval is huge, the judgment is still with restraint. But I like this quote from from Dave Hunt in his book Judgment Day. He said, we can't buy God off. He doesn't negotiate with us or work out any special deals to open the government. (laughs) I I added that just for fun. His perfect, holy justice must be satisfied. The penalty must be paid. Yet, God loves every person deeply enough to find a way to forgive man righteously. And we know the way, don't we? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. And John the Baptist, I think, summed it up beautifully. John 3.36 He said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So God very clearly leaves us with two choices. We can either go through the wrath, or we can go to the one who went through the wrath for us. And that's Jesus. Father, we we pause here in these judgments and in the study, partially, Lord, because it is almost too much to take in one sitting. And we see how devastating. And we understand how real. And Lord, in in reading this and thinking it through, it brings me back to what we talked about Sunday, that we are called to sound the alarm. And to give the alert. And to take this seriously. This is actual. Your literal word. You gave it through John, your servant, 2,000 years ago to begin the clarion warning. We have it today at the end of this age, at the end of this dispensation, Lord. On the very edge of things, we have the same call to be watchmen, watchwomen on the wall. Father, I I thank You for all here who have accepted the blood of Jesus, the blood that was poured out To all, Lord, who have come to You, Jesus, for taking 
the very dregs of the cup of the wrath of God on the cross. But in our salvation, in our assurance, even in the comfort of being called up at the last trumpet, I pray, Father, that You will engage us in this world with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You will motivate us like never before to simply and honestly share Jesus and share Your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.